A very good morning to one and all. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? Yes, most certainly. I also greet those of us who are worshipping together online. We pray that God's grace and peace be with you as well. Today is the very final sermon on the First Corinthians Sermon Series. And as we come to the end of this series, we truly are thankful for the lessons learned, the journey we have taken, and the transformation encountered. So today I will focus on First Corinthians chapter 15, the very last few verses, and chapter 16. So can I encourage you to turn to your Bibles? Because I'll be reading scripture along the way, and I pray that God's word will transform our hearts this day. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Your word brings life to our souls. And Lord, we need your life. Become Holy Spirit. Open your word to us. Purify my lips and purify all our hearts that we may be ready to receive your word for each one of us. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How far would you walk just to have wonton me? In a family holiday in Malacca recently in July, I walked close to three kilometers to find our poor wonton me. Our poor wonton me is supposed to be highly rated, and I really like wonton me. So question, was our poor wonton me worth the three kilometers worth of walk? Well, I graded 3.8 upon 5. Not bad. A star, right? But then, I discovered that the kaya toast there is 5 upon 5. Definitely worth it. The kaya there is excellent. And the butter. My friends, what's the point? The truth is, whatever we do today, we ask this question. Is it worth it? Is it worth the trip? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the cost? And Paul answers that question from a spiritual point of view right at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. After dealing with all the different issues, he asks, is it worth it? And that's an important question because we have to ask that question for our souls. Is it worth it? And Paul says, yes, it's worth it. Because there is a five upon five vision, and that's the vision of the resurrection hope. And that's the triumphant ending to the book. And today's sermon has two parts. The first part is the vision of resurrection hope. 1 Corinthians 15, the last few verses. And then the labor for God in response to the hope. And that's 1 Corinthians 16. The problem of the church in Corinth is that there are some who were preaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul tells the church, don't miss the point. Don't lose sight of the vision. If you believe that there is no resurrection of the dead, you are in serious trouble. He says there is a resurrection of the dead. And he says this, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. And so the early Christians would speak about death as falling asleep. As Jesus himself uses the idea in Mark chapter 5 verse 39 and John 11 verse 11 to 14. So falling asleep is a euphemism for the way people today would say, oh, he passed away. In those days they would say, he has fallen asleep. 
And the idea of falling asleep points to the day when one day we will wake up from our sleep and we will rise. And so at death, believers fall asleep in Christ. Now that's the key point. In Christ, they are asleep. And at the next conscious experience, they will be wakened to see Jesus at the resurrection on the last day. And when Christ returns, some of us here will not be dead yet. We will be asleep. But for all of us, it will be a quick transition. Transition to eternity. First in a flesh, in a twinkling of the eye, the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. And every believer will be given the imperishable, immortal body. So my friends, three transformations happen. The perishable to the imperishable. From mortal to immortal. From death to life. Because death no longer has its effect. Paul declares, death will be swallowed up in victory. When death is usually the thing that swallows up everything, right? By taking away life, by swallowing up life, death is now swallowed up instead. Oh, what a reversal. What victory. And so Paul taunts death. He tells death, death, where is your sting? The word sting here refers to the sting of bees and serpents, where it's painful, it's poisonous, it's destructive. And so Paul mocks at death with the kind of taunts that you hear at football matches. Oh, you are not effective anymore. You have lost. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? My friends, this, this, this is the gospel. This is the victory of God. Victory over the effect of sin, which is death. And victory over the power of sin, which is the law. But why is the law the power of sin? Because the law condemns us when we cannot keep the law. And the truth is, on our own, there is no ability from our part to keep, to fulfill the law. And the law only serves to show the power of sin in our lives, leaving us hopeless, leaving us helpless. That's why we need Christ. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith in Christ, we are saved. We are redeemed and we are made righteous in God's sight. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory. My friends, today, we are seated here and you wish to experience the victory of sin in your life, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Put your faith in His death and resurrection so you may one day look forward to the resurrection hope. Have you ever wondered what your resurrected body would look like? At which stage would you be resurrected with? Is it a body when you were younger? I always imagine maybe it's at this current stage now with my six-packs. I actually don't have six-packs. I have one big lump under which six-packs are hidden. That's why I tell people. But my friends, that's not the point. The point's not about the kind of body that you be resurrected with or at which stage of your life. The point is the nature of life symbolized by the body that you have. Because the resurrected body points to the kind of quality of life in the kingdom to come, in the new heaven and earth. The imperishable, immortal body we have, we will have, is one where there will be no decay, no corruption. So the life we will have is one where there will be no more sin. 
No more pain. No more death. Revelations 21 tells us that God will dwell with us. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. The old is gone, the new has come, amen. And the new has come completely with us one day where we have that resurrected body. And so what are the implications of this resurrection hope? Number one, we need not fear death. This doesn't mean we actually don't fear death or cannot grieve the loss of loved ones. All of us here, I believe, are anxious about how we may die. We don't want to lose our loved ones. Here's the truth. We may never be fearless, but we can fear less. We need not be crippled by fear, because in Christ, we have the resurrection hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, you need not fear like those who do not have hope. Amen. And today we have hope. I have hope that one day I will see those who have gone ahead of me. As I speak, one of my dear mentors, Dr. Oliver Seat, a faithful servant of the Lord, passed on last night. And we will mourn his loss. But I know that one day on that beautiful shore, we will meet again. When Christ returns and brings his saints home. Today, my friends, do you, do you have this hope? Will you turn your heart to Jesus? Because the second implication is equally important. The resurrection of hope means that we need to persevere to the end. This is the vision. We have to remain in Christ, stay faithful to Christ to the end. You see, it's not about how we start, but how we will finish in Christ at the end. And because if we do finish in Christ, we have the hope of resurrection and a life with God in the kingdom to come. And because this is a five upon five vision, it is worth it. Our perseverance matters. And can I invite all of us to read verse 58 together. Together now. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Turn to your neighbor and say, not in vain. Not in vain. Not in vain doesn't mean not easy. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. The word labor is the Greek word korpos, which points to the fact that you will be tired. In your labor, you will be tired. You will experience fatigue in the hard work for the Lord. But it is not in vain. Because the resurrection is real and certain, the whole of our Christian life is full of purpose and hope. What does that mean? That means your prayers matter every day. That means the raising of your children to follow Christ, it matters. It means that your marriage is sticking with one another to the end, that matters. It means your ministry to love the least and the last so that they may encounter Jesus, that matters. It means our missions, our evangelism, our discipleship now, they all matter. Our work to bring God's kingdom and transformation now, they matter. Because God's kingdom established now will be complete. So why don't we start now? We start now. So when the new heavens and earth come, we have started. And it is not in vain. So let's be the real church. 
Let's be the real church God wants us to be. Let's stand firm and give ourselves fully to what God is calling us to do because it is not in vain. The resurrection changes everything. And because it is not in vain, Paul now goes on to chapter 16 to encourage the church in Corinth to press on in their labor. This is my second part of the message today. In response to the resurrection hope, our labor for the Lord, three discipleship lessons, three things we can do to labor for God in response to this hope. Number one, we give faithfully. Because the Apostle Paul says in chapter 16, verse 1 to 3, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. This collection was for a mission to help the poor in Jerusalem. It was part of Paul's third missionary journey. And a gift offering from the Corinthians will be a powerful testimony to the world. And Romans 15, 26 tells us that ultimately the Corinthians came through. They were faithful to the task of giving. What then is the labor of faithful giving? Three principles. The first, the principle of priority. On the first day of every week, set aside. And so, my friends, which is the first day of the week? Most of you think, oh, tomorrow, Monday blues, first day of the week. No, my friends, the first day of the week is Sunday. The early church believed the first day of the week is Sunday. And that's why today, on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week, not the weekend, the first day of the week, you are gathered here to offer your Lord your very best, together in the house of the Lord, to start the week right in the house of the Lord, in the presence of God, encountering the Word to bring forward to the week. So when is the first day of the week? It's Sunday. Thank you. Because on the first day of the week, it reflects the idea of first fruits. The best. Not an afterthought, not loose change, but giving what is right and not what's left or left over. The second principle is possibility. Each one should set aside, which means giving is for everyone. It's not just for the well-off. Every one of us has that possibility and the responsibility to give. The third principle is proportionality. And that means we should set aside a sum in keeping with our income. We give out of what we have, not what we don't have. And those of us who are well off, we're able to give more. Let's be generous. My friends, our giving is never in vain. If we are faithful to give, the Lord will use it to multiply for the work of His kingdom. Not for our prosperity, but for the work of his kingdom. And it is with the resurrection hope that we give because our giving will cause many more to come to know the love and hope of Jesus Christ. That's why we give, because of the resurrection hope. And today, will you faithfully give? What does that mean for you? Are we storing up for ourselves treasures on earth? Are our eyes fixed on eternity? Today, my friends, let's be generous. Let's be faithful. The second discipleship lesson for faithful giving is to serve courageously. Because Paul goes on to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5 to 9. He says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. 
Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. This passage stirred my heart. Because my friends, whenever we labor for the Lord, it is not in vain, but opportunities and opposition go together. Paul was describing a time in Ephesus where there was great work done. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, he tells us because of the work of Paul and the ministry of evangelism, the whole of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In Acts chapter 20, during his farewell speech, Paul spoke of the sacrificial and costly ministry at Ephesus. And so there was effective work, but the opposition was also very bitter and strong. Paul experienced tears and trials. And so it is with us. Our labor for the Lord is to serve courageously. Opportunities and opposition will always go together. And so when we are opposed in ministry, it doesn't mean that we are out of God's will. It also doesn't mean that we intentionally go and create opposition for ourselves. But the real issue is whether we will continue to be courageous. And as a real church, we must. Post-COVID, do you know that God is opening new doors for effective work? Do you not sense it? Do you not see it? There are new doors in evangelism and missions like never before. There are new doors on the digital front where the gospel will be brought forth to the ends of the earth. If I may say right here in Wesley, I think God is opening us new doors, new doors to engage and disciple and raise our next generation. It is challenging to raise them in a turbulent and a complex world like today. And it will not be easy. I tell you what the opposition will be. The opposition will be the indifference, the lethargy, the fear of change, the complacency. We have to be brave. We have to step through these open doors. Because to raise the next generation will require us to be humble, to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. But above all, it requires that godly courage to have those authentic conversations, those paradigm shifts, and real actionable opportunities for the next generation to serve and lead in the church. I think there is an open door for us to care and nurture for our seniors. This is a reality that we need to embrace now. We have an aging population and the church is aging as well. It takes courage to persevere, to care for the sick, to comfort the lonely, to journey with the vulnerable. Will we do it as a real church? We must. By God's grace, we will. By God's grace, we will not miss the open doors for effective work despite opposition. Because when God calls and opens doors, He provides. Amen? Today, what are some of the open doors in your life for God's ministry? Open doors in your workplace. Open doors in your families. Some of us say, Lord, I don't dare to go through those doors. It takes too much out of me. Some of you see an open door for forgiveness. No, Lord, I don't want. Some of you see an open door to minister to your children, to a colleague, even to your superiors. You see an open door to effect change in the ministries of the church, but you, you, you are unwilling because it will cost you something. 
will you go? Will you love sacrificially? Will you be bold and courageous? Because our Lord is with you. The battle is His. Let Him fight it for you and let Him fight it with you. Just be His hands and be His feet. Finally, the labor for the Lord is to love consistently. And Paul says in verse 14, do everything in love. That means love is the consistent measure of whether we are laboring for the Lord. If you want to know whether you're laboring for the Lord, ask yourself, am I loving? Do I love? Do I put love as the first criteria in everything? What then is love? This love here is the word agapos or agape. comes from the idea of God's sacrificial and self-giving love. What then is love? Church, will you read together with me? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. That's not envy. That's not boast. It is not proud. That's not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And this is the word of our Lord. I ask myself, Raymond, are you kind? Raymond, are you self-seeking in your ministry? I ask myself, Raymond, do I persevere? Raymond, will you forgive? Yes, I understand that despite all the greatness of the works that we do, it is love that is the measure of them all. Paul commended the household of Stephanus in verse 15 and 16 because they were devoted to serve the needs of others. That is love. That's love because it's not self-seeking, because it's kind. And because we have gone through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, you will realize that love is the key principle for handling all the issues that we have covered, real issues. This Paul says love is the more excellent way. And indeed it is. And so if you do everything in love, if you love consistently, you will pursue unity. First Corinthians 1 to 4 says, some of you, you know, I, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Christ. Remember that? Divisions in the, in the church. If you truly pursue love, you, you will pursue unity. And Paul says, if you truly pursue love, you will remain in sexual purity and not engage in immorality. And Paul says, if you love consistently, you will honor each other in marriage and in singleness as well. And Paul says, if you truly love, you will lay down your rights so that you don't stumble a fellow brother and sister. Remember, he talked about eating food offered to idols. He talked about headwear for women in worship. He talked about the Lord's Supper when you gather. Don't rush for food. What's the principle? The underguiding principle is love. If you truly love, you will honor each other. If you truly love, you will use and desire gifts that will build the body of Christ. That is the principle of love. And so today as I close, what's our labor for the Lord? Would you give faithfully? Would you serve courageously? Would you love consistently? Because with the resurrection hope, it is not in vain. You forget anything I've said, leave this place, turn to your neighbor and say, it is not in vain. It is not in vain.
And Paul therefore closes the entire book with a longing in his heart. Because it's not in vain and because it's a reality that's going to come, he cries out, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord. These words go back to the early church. It expresses the deepest convictions of the early church, an eager longing for Christ to return. And today, let that be our eager desire as well. And here's, here's the truth. The more you hope for the future return of Christ, the more urgent you will realize your life. The more urgency you will have to press on for the labor of the Lord. If you want to know how you want to labor for the Lord more and more, you look to His coming. Because if He's going to return very soon, and you look around what's happening in the world, in the Middle East, the wars, the conflict, there are signs that Christ is indeed returning soon. And there is a clarion call for us to live our lives right. Because judgment is going to come for the evil. And we want to stay righteous and stick with Christ to the very end. And the more you long for the return of Christ, the richer your love for God will be. There's a movie in the 1970s entitled Heaven Can Wait. It's a movie about a professional footballer who died in a car accident. He was very disappointed to find himself in heaven because he would miss out on the Super Bowl. You know, I remember this gentleman came to me and said, you know, Pastor, I really pray that Christ won't come until I get married. But after I got married, I wonder when is Christ coming again. You know, for some of us, we tell God, hey God, heaven can wait. I haven't gotten my CPF yet. Oh, heaven can wait. I'm, I'm doing so well in my career, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to climb to the upper echelon. Heaven can wait because I haven't got my car yet until the COE prices go down. Heaven can wait because, you know, I want to see my children go up. I want to have grandchildren. What? Is that for you? Are you telling God, God, heaven can wait? Christ, please don't return so soon. Or are we saying, Jesus, come. Lord, Come. I want to be ready for your coming. Because my heart is centered on your labor. Laboring for what is eternal, not temporal. And as I close this sermon series, will we be a real church? Rested in their resurrection home. Ready for his return. I pray we will be. It's not going to be easy, Wesley. Nobody says it's going to be easy. But is it worth it? You bet it is. It is because we have the resurrection hope. Because our labor is not in vain. Join me in prayer. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. Holy Spirit, would you open every heart? Let us receive your word to each one of us. Give us a longing for Jesus to return. And Jesus, you are returning very soon. Let us be ready. Let us not fix our hearts on things that are temporal. But let us labor for you for the things that matter. Let us labor for you for the resurrection hope we have in you. 
many more will come to know Jesus and experience that hope. Be with us, Lord. We need you. As we come to your table, let us receive your grace to be your faithful disciples to the end, every day with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.